Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, Thomas Stanley, the author of The Millionaire Next Door, wrote, before you can become a millionaire, you must learn to think like one. Well, what would it be like if you could interview successful everyday millionaires and hear their stories on how they got to where they are? What were they investing in? What were their investment strategies? How did they allocate their portfolio? How did they get started? And what decisions did they make along the way? Well, my two guests today did just that. They've interviewed over 100 everyday millionaires to ask them those very questions and many others. What I wanted to do is ask them what they learned from their many interviews that they did with those same millionaires. Maybe think of this interview as a Cliff Notes version of lessons learned from everyday millionaires. So I hope you enjoy this podcast episode, and we'll be right back right after this quick message. It's my pleasure to welcome Clark and Jace to the show. Clark Sheffield is a CPA and completed his undergrad in accounting from Brigham Young University and his master's in accounting from the University of Notre Dame. Amazing. Jace Mattinson graduated in accounting from Brigham Young University as well and started his career with PricewaterCoopers. He's an active CPA and the current CFO of his company. They are both the hosts of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where they have talked to over 100 everyday millionaires about their stories and strategies of success and real estate. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm excited to have you guys on because who else do I know, which is nobody, that has interviewed over 100 millionaires and really tapped into their brain to pull out those amazing nuggets of information of how they started their journey and how they got to become a millionaire. So I'm really excited to ask you some questions here today. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. We're at a uh, hundred interviews or so. So kind of got started a year and a half ago and, and it's been a, a good journey so far. Awesome. Well, you know, let's start off with you guys. Why don't you both uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and what you guys do and just give my audience a sense of who you are. Yeah. So I'll start. This is Clark. Uh, I'll let Jace follow. So I went to BYU, as you said, master's from Notre Dame, and then came out to New York and started working in accounting at KPMG, just a, a big accounting firm, and left after a couple of years to lead kind of the accounting and finance at a multifamily real estate investing and property management company here in New York City. So we buy multifamily assets, have about 35 buildings, uh, all in northern Manhattan and the Bronx, and I lead the accounting team here. And and then a year and a half ago, Jason and I decided to start the podcast and and kind of have been working on that on the side. Yeah, and just like Clark, I this is Jace. I graduated from BYU in accounting as well and started my career at, at PwC, or formerly known as Price Waterhouse, and uh, stayed there for just under two years and then went to an outsourced accounting firm where I was partner and then uh, went on with one of my clients in somewhat of a turnaround situation. So now I'm the CFO of a company, and we own and operate building materials, supply centers, and hardware stores uh, throughout Texas. Cool. Well, thanks for that intro. So you guys have an interesting podcast idea, and that really was to interview millionaires, and you refer to them as everyday millionaires. But either way, you know, as I mentioned before, it's a very interesting idea and a cool topic. So 
here you are interviewing this millionaire demographic and you've got me curious on so many levels. We could probably talk for hours, but we're not going to do that today. But let's start with the mindset because I always believe that, you know, you should invest in yourself first before you invest in other things. And I'm always intrigued by people's mindset and their mentality and their upbringing and all that good stuff. So after interviewing 100 plus millionaires, what things have you found to be common amongst all these millionaires you've interviewed? There must be common denominators that you found, I would assume. Yeah, let me just back up and say why we started at first, and then we'll kind of go into it. So initially, this is a year and a half ago or so, Jason and I were starting to to grow our careers and, and kind of had enough income where we could invest on the side, right? Where we could start buying real estate or investing in the market or, or whatever else we wanted to. And And so we kind of started looking out and saying, okay, what do we want to invest in? And that kind of took us to knowing some allocations of some people, you know, some of these people post their, how they invest online. You have different podcasts where you can kind of hear about these things. And, but that kind of led us to say, Hey, you know, how do all millionaires invest or how do people who have been successful, right? Whether it's a net worth of a million or a hundred million, how do they invest and kind of what's been their journey? And then, you know, that was kind of the goal of the podcast initially. But as you said, as we've been interviewing these millionaires, you kind of, you pick up so much additional information from them, right? And one of that's being the mindset. And, you know, I, th- I think sometimes we think, hey, these people are all so driven and so f- focused and they goal set and they work on themselves. But that's not always the case. You know, I think a lot of them do. A lot of them do set goals. A lot of them, you know, work on themselves and go to seminars and, and this and that. But a lot of them aren't big into goal setting. I'd say, and Jace can speak for himself, but a couple of the things that stood out to me or have stood out to me if we've done these interviews is their intentionality and they're focused. And everybody's different, you know, whether they invest in the market, whether they invest in real estate, whether they invest in their small business, whether they're somehow split, whether, you know, they inherited their million dollars. I mean, whatever it is, they're intentional about what they're doing with their money. And so that's probably been the biggest thing that I've taken away from the podcast and all these interviews is that people know what they want. And sure, sometimes they switch and they move around, but they're a go-getter and they're driven to succeed. Did you say they're a go-giver or a go-getter? Go-getter. Okay. Go-getter. But they are a giver. They give a lot too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and actually, I'm going to get to that here because it's one of the things I'm curious about as well. But you know, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but I, my related question to that is about their backgrounds. I mean, it must be widely varied, but do you find a wide variety of backgrounds or do they all come from kind of a common starting ground? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is they they have various backgrounds. You know, some people grew up in the States, some people didn't. Some people grew up in wealthy households, some didn't. And the, I think the common denominator amongst all these people is is work ethic, to be honest. A lot of them have a very good work ethic. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they developed that when they were 10, but they definitely at some point developed a work ethic to become really, really, really good at their craft or their career or whatever it might be. And the background for all of them, I would say, hasn't held any one back one way or the other. We've had people that have come completely out of poverty and we've had had people that have, have grown up super wealthy but didn't receive any inheritance at all from their parents or family. And we've also had people that have come on our show that, that have inherited a substantial chunk of change, but have continued to work and continue to build their, their wealth. 
So that's a very, very varied background. It's not that they all had a silver spoon in their mouth. They may have come from well-to-do families, but they didn't necessarily get a head start from their parents. Like, for example, President Trump, from what I understand, you know, had a loan from his father to give a him a small loan. Well, <laughs> relatively small speaking, loan of yeah. a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's a great catalyst to get someone launched, right? Especially if you know what you're doing and you have connections. But other people, you know, may have come from a poor family and they just had to claw and work and struggle their way through to get off the ground and then build it up. Right. And I, I think there's a few people that have, have built it up and then lost it. You know, a couple months ago, we interviewed a guy who was over leveraged in 2008, 2009 and lost it all and has since built it up and is now worth about $5 million. But for the most part, you know, they've, it's kind of just been a slow and steady. And they started a career just like you or me and, and they just built it up from there. I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that a lot of successful people failed at least once in their past and probably multiple times. And I've also heard statistics that a lot of people who are very successful or millionaires or multimillionaires have filed for bankruptcy at least once in their past because, you know, they just took a risk and tried to knock it out of the park. Things didn't go their way. They failed. They were underwater and they got themselves in a situation where they didn't have a choice but to file for bankruptcy or, you know, whether it's personal or business. But I think you are more prone to fail trying hard to succeed, but it's those people that try hard and fail that ultimately do succeed because they are out there trying. Yeah, I agree. And the two people, Jace, correct me if I'm wrong, but the two people that come to mind that have filed bankruptcy and have since rebooted and they, you know, I think that goes back to the mindset and the intentionality and the work ethic, right? Like, I mean, yeah, they were going to go all out and and try and succeed and something didn't happen. And these, you know, these two gentlemen that we interviewed went bankrupt, but it wasn't long after that they got back on their feet and and were wealthy and successful again. Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, Clark and I both like sports and I think there's a common phrase in sports sometimes that you play the game to win instead of playing, you know, a fear of, of losing and whatnot. I think a lot of these millionaires really take that to heart. Like they are playing the game to win versus trying to, to not lose, if you will. And whether that be investments or career or whatever, they're willing to take those big risks to play the game, whether it be real estate or putting money in the market or equities or, or even their own business. Versus trying not to lose. And, and you'll definitely see that more and more as people have gotten wealthier and wealthier, that they're playing that game to win versus trying to not lose. Yeah, I agree. That's a huge differentiator. And that parallels the saying that successful people have an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. Because when you have a scarcity mindset, you tend to play not to lose because you want to preserve what you have. You're not trying to grow what you have or what you could potentially create. So there's a lot of truth, I think, in that saying. Totally. So in terms of habits, you mentioned habits. Are there some common habits that attribute to these people's success? Is, it, is there more to it than what you just said? Or does that really summarize the whole thing for millionaires? You know, I don't think there's one thing. I don't think there's one thing that stands out just because they all come from totally different backgrounds and and maybe Jace will think differently, but I think a big part of the habit is just they keep going, you know? I mean, maybe we think of that as kind of an easy thing to do, but you know, these guys just keep going and they're relentless and they're tracking their net worth, they're 
talking to people that are successful. They're hanging out with good people. They're trying to learn. They're reading books. You know, maybe reading is a, is a habit that we've all noticed, right? When we ask, hey, what are your favorite books? They all have something to say. They learn from their mistakes. You know, we always ask, hey, what are some of the mistakes you've, you've made? And it's kind of been a, a joke on the show a little bit because I think they've all made so many, right? And so they all say, hey, I can't just pick one. But, you know, I would say probably reading and, and learning and pushing themselves and surrounding themselves with good, successful people that they can learn from is probably the things that stand out to me. I think I'd add to that. For the most part, I would say a lot of them are frugal, or at least were very frugal when they were just beginning. You know, they didn't buy those luxury items when maybe they first hit that first home run or even that first double. Those luxury items, if they ever came, weighted definitely towards the later later chunk of their wealth building if you're looking at it in, in innings. The other thing that I would add to that as well is is these millionaires... Clark kind of alluded there's just not really one thing. I mean, some people say, oh, millionaires are always get up early and they always go to bed early and all these things. Like what we've seen is, is it really doesn't matter. It really, what really matters is figuring out what works for you, whether it, you know, in terms of your habits, whether that's tracking your net worth every single month or whether you don't track it at all, or whether that's waking up at 530 in the morning, because that's the time you like to get up and get to work. Or maybe you're a night owl and you like to work till two in the morning. You know, we've seen stuff all over the board with that. And the same thing with investments. It's just like a muscle. Like, how do you want to work out these different muscles and figuring out how that works best for you? And we've seen things all over the board amongst all these millionaires. That's a very interesting observation that there is such a wide diversity in characters and personality types and habits and maybe even belief systems that you can be successful regardless of who you are, what your background was, whether you're a morning person or a night person, what your investment strategy might be. It sounds like, and I keep coming back to this myself, it comes down to persistence. If you have a strategy and even a half-baked plan, but you're persistent with it, I think ultimately you will achieve a certain level of success. And persistence is probably one of the biggest drivers I have found, at least in my experience with the people that I know, that have led people to be successful. Yeah, totally agree, 100%. And continual persistence and, and being intentional about you know, what you're going after, right? I think they all have some element or, or some sort of goal they're reaching on. You know, I wouldn't say that they sit down every morning and review their goals or even that every year they're, they're making goals. but I think big picture, they've thought about it yeah. and they're persistently trying to get there. As landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that thousands of landlords have to deal with the headache of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there was a trusted way to help prevent the headache of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. SmartMove's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which can help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. Now, for a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try SmartMove tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how SmartMove can help you find your next great tenant. First, make a more informed decision with SmartMove's proprietary credit score, built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. 
Second, reduce non-payment risk with SmartMove's Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. And third, get critical information quickly with a full credit report and criminal background and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, SmartMove can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental properties. If you own a rental property, SmartMove can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment and evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, and enter code NORADA25, N-O-R-A-D-A-25 at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion SmartMove, you'll get great reports, great convenience, and great tenants. Let me quickly flip that question on its head and, and ask the opposite type of question. What were the worst habits that held these people back or caused them to fail? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I'd say probably laziness has come up more often than not. You know, maybe jumping into too quickly to something that they didn't understand, right? Trying to invest in the markets or real estate or Bitcoin or something without fully understanding it. But I think you're spot on in what you said earlier that if you just keep grinding and keep being persistent and keep going at it, you know, eventually some level of success comes. And I think oftentimes when these people are grinding, they get an opportunity or they meet somebody and, and kind of their career or their, their path to success kind of goes down a different road. And it's not necessarily something that they had planned on, but it just went that way. And so I think the laziness of people not, you know, putting themselves out there, that's kind of what, what has held them back. Right. Yeah. Good point. One of the posters I have on my wall says, greatness demands everything. And if you just think about that, you realize that you can achieve almost anything you want, but it requires almost everything you've got. You've got to be a player, not just a fan. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because so often, I mean, everybody's had a successful day or a week where someone said, you know, man, I really, I really worked hard this week. Or, you know, you worked hard at completing something or you procrastinate a task and then you got it done. And, and everyone knows that feeling of when you get it done and you feel fulfilled. And, and I think that's what a lot of these, at least the people we've interviewed and, and obviously successful people anywhere, that's kind of what they've done, right? I think they're just focused on their task. They keep going, they keep grinding. And that's hard to do continually, you know, week after week, year after year. Oh, sure. I mean, there are times where you get burned out and people will think, oh man, why yeah. am I doing this? Like, it's just too much work. It's too draining, too much energy. I'd rather hit the pillow than, you know, hit my laptop and create something. But those are the people who become very successful. And then you look back and you realize that, yeah, it was worth, worth those years of pain to now have, you know, that financial freedom and time freedom for the rest of my life and then be able to pass that along to my heirs, my children, their children. So it's worth it. Right, right. And Jason mentioned about frugality a little bit. I guess the other side of that is probably those who aren't frugal or, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be frugal if you're making a ton of money, right? But if you're not making a lot, then you have to be a little bit more frugal if you want discretionary income to invest. And so there's probably a lot of people that we could be interviewing that we're not, right? Because they've chosen to spend their money versus invest it. So all these people have chosen to grow their side income or live frugally so that they do have income to grow and invest. My last mindset related question is something that I think about from time to time. And it, it kind of came from Robert Kiyosaki, who I know reasonably well. I've had dinner with him many times and hung out with him a lot. And, you know, he talks about this misconception that a lot of people have that people who are rich or wealthy or millionaires are greedy folk, that they, 
you know, they're all about themselves and whatnot. So my question to you is, did you get a sense in all these interviews of how many of these people donate to charities or give back to the community in other ways? Yeah, I would say that nearly all of them donate to charity or give back to community or, you know, provide essentially, quote unquote, free mentorship to other people to help them be successful or give of their time in other ways. I think the the higher you go up that ladder, you see a lot of these people become more and more worried and concerned about maybe their quote unquote legacy, if you will. And a lot of that legacy revolves around giving. Like they want to give, they want to give back. You know, there's something that happens in our brains when we do that. And a lot of people really enjoy that. I honestly can't even think of anybody we've interviewed that was like, oh, no, I don't like to give back. I like to keep it all for myself, you know? Yeah. I had no idea how you're going to answer that question, but your answer doesn't surprise me, but I'm happy to hear what you said because it really dispels the myth that some people have especially, and I I don't want to paint a picture of a certain demographic, but I think as you get down the economic scale or ladder, if you will, to people who are not well off and maybe, you know, struggle living paycheck to paycheck, have this false belief that people who are successful because they've worked hard for it are greedy people and they don't actually contribute or give back to society or help out in any way. And that's so far from the truth that I really wish that everybody knew how much these people did. Yeah. And, and so much of it is financially, you know, so much of it is, is given to, you know, tithes or offerings or given to different groups or youth groups. But so much of it too, is just being willing to teach and help and share their story and you know, I'm sure you know this because you, you've done so many interviews, but so often when we talk to these guys, right? I mean, you're interviewing a guy who's worth 10, 12 million dollars. And I mean, it seems like you could keep him on and ask anything, right? He's so willing to help and he's so open. And so I think, you know, that's so valuable, right? I think sometimes we think of these uber rich people being like, oh, I don't have time for you. Yeah. But they're so willing and they're so willing, not just with us, but other people, right? Anybody, I mean, they want, they want to help. They're so willing to like, I mean, yeah. that's been their whole life, their whole story. And and so I think that's a lot of, of uh, giving back that they do as well. That's maybe not talked about as frequently as it should. Yeah, no, I agree. That's great. So let's shift a bit here. Let's talk about more of the investment side of the equation here with these millionaires. Let's get into how and what. So based on all these interviews, what does a typical asset allocation look like? And I'm sure this is probably very diversified and there's probably no one size or model fits all, but what have you seen across all these interviews in terms of asset allocation? Yeah, you're spot on. So it's totally different, right? So some people are 100% invested in the market. Some people are 100% invested in real estate. You know, some people are 60-40, some people are 40-60, some people are, are in small business. And then within that, of course, there's several different buckets, right? If they're invested in the market, are they invested in retirement accounts or outside of their retirement accounts? Are they invested in, you know, health savings accounts or 529 plans, or are they invested just in traditional market? If I were to sum it all up, I would say, you know, if we were to average everything, I bet you it's 70% in the market or 65% in the market and and 35% in real estate. And then of course in, in real estate, I mean, stop me here if you, if I ramble on, but there's so many buckets and, and just kind of for this interview, cause I know you were you're so heavy in real estate here. And that's probably what a lot of people listening to the show is. I'll just kind of briefly run down some of the investments that we've heard of. So single family investments, right? It is 
do you self-manage it or do you hire a property management company? Right? Have you turned your primary residence into a rental? So you bought your second house and you decided, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna rent out my primary residence. And some of them have been accidental landlords, right? They bought a house or they got a new job and they moved and they didn't want to be a landlord, but they ended up being a landlord. And that ranges from, you know, people with one single family rental to a guy that lives abroad and owns 20 single family rentals and hires a property management company to take care of it. And then, of course, outside of single family, you have multifamily. So that's anything from syndicated to non-syndicated to owning, you know, a quadplex and living in one of the units, house hacking. And then beyond that, you have people that, you know, have an Airbnb strategy or they own mobile home parks, they own a self-storage, they flip land, uh, maybe they own a commercial property. You know, one guy comes to mind with that owned 70, that owned a, a big commercial office complex and 70% of his net worth was in this one commercial office complex. So all across the board, you know, I'd say again, probably the average is, I mean, Chase, maybe you think differently, 65, 35 market to real estate, maybe 70, 30, but you know, guys that are hundred percent real estate and the guys that are scared of real estate and won't touch it. I think the thing I would add is, is more often than not, the people that are in real estate are heavy, heavy in real estate, 90% plus probably. And the people that, whether they're W-2 or self-employed and they, they invest in the market, their allocation will be slighted probably 75 more towards the market. And part of that's just because they just maybe haven't got the real estate investments rolling yet, but they typically will go to the market first and then start looking at real estate as they progress in their career. And same thing with business owners. Business owners typically we'll choose one or the other from what we've seen. There isn't, you know, call it the three-legged stool. We haven't seen very many of those, you know, allocations where they typically are trying to maintain somewhat of a healthy, you know, allocation between the the three buckets. But the other thing I would add to is a majority of them keep probably 20 to 25% or less in their home equity or home value, if you will. Are you saying they keep 20 20- percent or so of their net worth in their principal residence? Or, or are you talking about the equity within their principal residence that they keep it low? Yes, yes, both basically. So if, if, if they've got a million dollar net worth on average equity in their home, or if it's paid off is going to be in that 200 to $250,000 range or less. Got it. Interesting. So of all these people that you interviewed and are involved in real estate to some degree or maybe entirely, how many of them are what I refer to as active real estate investors versus passive? And if you don't know what, what I'm talking about, just ask me. But No, I'd say, let's see, if we take the 100 people we've interviewed and I don't know, Jace, what, maybe 70 of them are in real estate. Maybe there's 25 yeah. or so that haven't been. I'd say probably, I don't know, what do you think, Jace, 20% are active? Yeah, it's the people that, that we've interviewed tend to invest more passively, whether it's via crowdfunding platforms or turnkey providers or syndications, they typically will invest more passively than actively. Or they own they own single families, but they hire a property management company. Yeah. Right? yeah. They, don't, they don't self-manage it themselves. Yeah, I find that to be pretty typical anyway, even with active real estate investors that are creating their own deals, buying distressed, fixing them up, regardless of the size of that asset, they tend to hand it over to a management company and not self-manage, but they go on to the next deal or the next business idea, whatever they do. So 
yeah, passive investing seems to be very popular and certainly the most dominant form of real estate investing. Yep. Yep. Agree with you. And I'd say that's what we've seen as well. So here's a similar question. Like, do you have any sense of how many of those real estate investor millionaires you've interviewed are local investors versus investing long distance? Do you have a sense of the mix in their portfolio of how much is local versus out of their local area? I'd say it's split. You know, it's something I'm interested in because I'm in New York. And so I've often asked, hey, do you invest out of state? Or what are your concerns if you do invest out of state? And I'd say seven or eight out of 10 of them invest out of state. You know, and, and I know you talk about that a lot is, is investing in an area, not necessarily where you live and that's okay. And, you know, a lot of people do them. A lot of people do that. The one that comes to mind is a guy that's in Korea that works in the military and he owns 20 single family rentals in the States. And he just, you know, he's, he's kept buying them. Another lady owns eight across several different States, single family rentals. And, you know, she hires a property management company, different property management company in, in each state and, and does that. So it's definitely there. In wrapping this subject about investing, what do you think has contributed more to a millionaire's net worth and success? Was it investing in a particular asset class or was it investing in a business that created their income and net worth to grow their net worth in other asset classes? Well, I think that's a tough question because you definitely see the ones that have created a business get on the higher echelon, they have the higher incomes, they are able to put more capital to work as an investment in certain asset classes. But I think we hit on it earlier in terms of just building in general, it's just the consistency and the persistence. And whether that's building a business and taking excess cash flow out of your business and investing it in real estate or in other businesses or whatever else, or whether that's taking that cash flow and investing it back in your business to grow it, those are very, very consistent approaches that we've seen, you know, and, and somebody who, who started super young and invested some of their W2 income, you know, time grows, you know, time helps money grow. Sure. And so we've seen some of them, you know, over the last, especially with this last bull run in the market, you know, some of those people have done significantly well. You know, the other thing that we haven't mentioned that we've seen, we've had a lot of people that have either gotten some sort of stock options or whether it be a little bit of equity in their company that then went and sold or went IPO. And, and there's quite a few of those, you know, you, you see a bunch of them in the media because it's very popular for somebody to, to go work at, you know, a tech unicorn and then cash out. But, you know, there's also for as many of those that are successful, there's also a bunch that aren't, but we've also talked to some people where, Hey, they, they didn't have a unicorn exit. But, you know, they had a little bit of equity in their company and that ended up being like, you know, they had a $10 million sale and they had a $400,000 personal exit, you know, from that company that, which is a sizable chunk of change when their salary might have only been a hundred grand, right? So that's one other way that we've seen several millionaires get to that mark is being able to cash out some sort of equity at some point, even if it wasn't their own business. So owning a business really is a fast track if you have a successful business. You know, you can typically, I mean, we all know this, you know, if you can build a successful business, which granted is a hard thing to do and takes years to get to a point where you've passed critical mass and now you've, you've got that rocket launched in the air and it's, it's a matter of more sustaining the business than it is trying to force build it. 
But those people who are professionals have high incomes, even if they're W-2 or have successful businesses, have more working capital along with the credit to build that portfolio. So they can fast track their success. But for everybody else who's, I hate to say, you know, just, but just on a W-2 income, you've got to manage your expenses and make sure that you can save as much as you can, as fast as you can, so you can deploy it into growing assets like real estate. So it's not an unfair advantage. It's just a matter of choice. It's what people chose to do. You know, they took a risk and built a business and maybe they became millionaires faster than the W-2 person, but it's all doable. Right. And if they're making more on a W-2 job, then they can do it as well. Right. I mean, we have people that are high W-2 earners and that's what they do. But the people that it takes longer and they struggle to get ahead faster are the people that are lower W-2 earners. You know, that's just how it is because they can't put as much aside and they can't invest it, whether that's in the market or real estate or starting their own small business. You know, it's just it's harder. Yep. So, guys, after doing all these interviews, what has been your greatest lesson or takeaway from them? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. For myself, I've really, in looking at it, you know, Clark and I were really interested in in the allocation and how people kind of did it. And for myself, you know, I've been investing in the markets. You know, I had a paper out starting at 10 or 11, I guess. And then, you know, I had a lawn care business stuff. So I've been putting money away into a Roth IRA for, you know, I'm 31 now since I was like 12, 13 years old. So, I'm just like kind of ingrained into that market a little bit and I get the public markets and, you know, some of the things that I've invested in have performed really well over the, you know, 20 year span. So I think the one thing that's for me personally that I've learned, especially more so from some of our, you know, DECA millionaires and and some other people that, that have allocated this way, it's to, to reevaluate my allocation and kind of what I've chosen to do with that is is kind of adopt the three-legged stool and have, you know, those tax-protected retirement type accounts are going to stay in the market. Uh, I may end up self-directing some in, in the future, but there's one thing that is terrible about those, and that's that they don't provide cash flow, which other assets do. And so I will continually have that bucket there. I'm not going to like cash it out. And I don't plan to like, you know, self-direct any of that to the point that, you know, I'd try to commingle it with personal money so that I can get some sort of cash flow. But it's led me to also take the approach that I'm going to invest, you know, at least try to keep around a third of my net worth in cash flowing, quote unquote, passive income real estate. And then another third, which may end up being a lot more than a third just because businesses grow faster, but in business equity. And that even means going as far as such as, as buying and acquiring businesses with excess cash flow, whether it be an online business or taking chunk of money every year and investing in something that I want to start up from the ground up. I don't know. That's a really interesting question, but I've kind of moved myself into that boat. The other thing I think that I've learned a lot is the value of, of health savings accounts for those people that have, you know, high deductible plan because the government really, you know, allows you to pay for healthcare with tax-free money. And if not, you can invest that money in various asset classes. And there's very few investments where you can put away money that earned income like that and let it continue to earn tax-free forever, as long as it's used for healthcare. And it's pretty inevitable that all of us are going to have some sort of healthcare expense now or in the future or both. And so I think that's one thing, you know, there's a lot of millionaires we've interviewed that 
that's one part of their portfolio that they're always like, I wish I would have done that, or I wish I would have grown that, or I wish I would have done something with that, or yeah, I just started one last year. I wish I would have done it 10 years ago, kind of thing. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know HSA was so popular amongst other uh, millionaire people. So, wow. Was that Jace or was that Clark? Yeah, that was Jace. I can go. You know, I think oftentimes we get this question, right? Like, hey, what have you learned? Or tell me about your typical millionaire. Like, who who is it? Right? Like, you've interviewed so many. Who is it? Like, what did they do? And I think a big takeaway is, and it's not a sexy answer necessarily to give, but there's no one way. You know, all these people have done it so differently. But I think the trade, and we've touched on this several times, is is they've been persistent in what they're doing. And some people have done it all through real estate. Some people have done it all through W-2 jobs. Some people have done it all through their own business. But, you know, they've all done it differently. And, you know, I think it's just great to hear tons of stories. People do it differently. How did they do it? Some people had tons of failures. Some people only had a few failures. Some people have, you know, tons of advice to give. And, and some people say, hey, I got lucky. Yeah. And so it's tough, right? But there's no one way. There really isn't. And, you know, I, I think I've learned that cash is king. <laughs> You know, all these people are able to get to where they are because they have cash to invest. And regardless of how they got it, it doesn't matter. You know, they had it to invest and they put it to work. And that's how they've grown their net worth, whether it's through properties, something in the market or a small business. They've saved cash or they've got cash. And that's what's kind of helped lead to their success. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to put it to work. So in terms of favorite books, you probably ask this question a lot and you've probably hear the same ones come up over and over again. What what would you say are the top two or three books that you hear more often than not? Yeah, I'd say the top two are probably just Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, and Millionaire Mind or Millionaire Next Door. But, you know, everybody, but a lot of these guys are reading biographies. You know, that's something I've taken away too. A lot of them are reading about successful people or lessons from successful people. You know, Warren Buffett's essays come up a lot on the show as well. But I think Rich Dad, Poor Dad's probably the number one book that comes up over and over again. Interesting. And what about influencers? Do they have favorite influencers, people that they follow, that they use as mentors? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question as well, because I wouldn't say that there's one person or one thing. What we found, and this is kind of funny, is people really relate to somebody who's in their shoes or has gone their path. And so I think overall, you know, we, we have these people in the social media space that have big followings, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, Grant Cardone comes to mind. But and, and don't get me wrong, like people read their books and, and follow them too. But they're really, for most people that we interview, those people they don't really relate to. And so they really try to find somebody or pick somebody out. You know, whether it be a blog or somebody that has an Instagram account that they really relate to, whether that person's gone the similar route that they want to go or is going, or they're around the same age or age group. And, you know, maybe they're leaps and bounds ahead of them in, in income, business or net worth. And they try to kind of follow and clasp onto lessons they might learn from that person. Right. Makes sense. Okay, guys. So last question, this is kind of pointing the spotlight back at you, you know, based on the interviews you guys had, and everything you've learned from all these millionaires, what advice would you give my audience to help them get to that next level in their financial journey? Yeah, I'm just going to circle back to intentionality. You know, I, that's something that all these guys, you know, whether you're young or old and whether you're trying to buy, you know, if it's a real estate, let's just say, for example, if you're trying to buy your first property or, or invest in something, right? 
you just got to set a goal, right? The people that set goals and are intentional about what they want to do, that's how it happens the fastest, you know, and, and just keeping, if the goal is, Hey, I want to buy my first rental, you know, work towards it and make that be a goal and, and do what you need to do to get there. That's, that's what these people do. You know, that's what the successful people do is they wake up every morning and they grind it out. They go to work and they have these goals in mind and they say, you know, I'm going to keep going until I reach it. And then when I reach it, I'm going to do the next thing. And so that'd be my, my advice is just learn from successful people, you know, do what you can, whether it's podcasts or, or reading. There's so many free resources now, right now with podcasts and blogs and, you know, everything that's out there. There's so many free resources and so much available to everybody. So anybody who wants to be successful can be. Anybody who wants to be successful in real estate can be. Anybody who wants to be a successful investor in the market can be. If you want to have a successful W-2 job, if you want to make a million dollars a year in your job, it's all successful. You can do it. You can be successful. But I think you just need to focus on it and be intentional about what you want. And that's probably the first place to start is what do you want? You know, if the goal is to own a 10-unit property and that's the own goal, you can get there. You can get there, but you just got to take the steps and be intentionally. So well said, Clark. Jace, what about you? Yeah, I would add to that that, you know, growing your circle of influence. I don't know that people really realize how much the people they hang out with and talk with really influences their mindset and decision making. And if you grow that circle of influence, and I, you know, that can be making new friends, that could be, you know, finding somebody online that you like, that you take a liking to and, and get to know them better, go meet them at a conference, take them out to lunch. You know, Clark and I could share numerous stories of people that we've been in, in contact with or in the room with or talk with or whatever that we would have never, ever thought possible. But all of it kind of led to that point from growing that circle of influence. You know, and one thing I think that I've heard a few people talk about, and I, you know, this has worked for me, that there's somebody you want to want to hang out with or want to get to know better, and you're really not sure how to approach it, donate to their personal charity or some sort of event they're putting on and try to get kind of get your foot into the door that way with them. Yeah, that's great advice. Cool. Guys, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up here? No, I think I think it's good. Thanks so much for having us. We really appreciate you taking the time. My, yeah, my pleasure. You. So tell our listeners how they can find out about what you guys do or find out more about what you're all about. Yeah. So we have a, a website, millionairesunveiled.com, and you can find the podcast there also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere really. We're, we're redoing the website now so that people can go on and kind of read these summaries of each of the interviews that we do. So you just search us, Millionaires Unveiled, you can find us. Yep. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So it'll be uh, easier to click and find. Awesome. All right, you guys. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Very, very interesting stuff, Clark. Jace, I keep up the good work. I love what you guys are doing. Hey, thank you. Thanks again. Thanks, Marco. Thanks. a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. 
Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.